Blog Talk Radio. Thank you, thank you for tuning in. This is T. Love, your host here at Energy Awareness Radio. I am a certified reconnective healing practitioner, 
sound therapist, and positive psychology practitioner with a private practice in Sussex County, New Jersey, where we are streaming to you live as we do every Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Now, our chat room is open, so go ahead and you know the you know the drill. Join the discussion that's already happening online. We keep an eye on the chat room, so if questions come up, we do our best to get your question on the air. And as an alternative, for those of you who are on the go and you cannot continue to listen online, please feel free to call us directly by dialing 347-202-0227. And that way you can listen via phone, or please be sure to use a Bluetooth if you are driving about. Tonight we're going to delve right into the topic of conversation because it's absolutely fascinating. My guest, Robert Moss, is the author of The Boy Who Died and Came Back. And he's the author of numerous other books about dreaming, shamanism, and imagination as well. He is a novelist, poet, independent scholar, and the creator of Active Dreaming, an original synthesis of dream work and shamanism. Now, he leads creative and shamanic adventures all over the world, and tonight we are so very fortunate because he is here to enlighten all of us as we discuss his not one, not two, but three near-death experiences. So let's get to it. Welcome to the show, Robert. Thank you so much for taking time to join us tonight. How are you being this evening? Good to be with you, T. It's great to have you here. I would like to start because not everyone has read the book, and you know the purpose of the show is to promote the book so that people will go out and be fascinated as I am and get the book and read it. So if you could, I'd like to start, if you don't mind, with you telling us about the first time that you died in Australia. Is that okay with you? Absolutely. Well, that's where the book gets, gets its title. It goes like mm-hmm. this. I'm three years old. My mother decides me to, to take me from Melbourne to West Australia across the very large continent of Australia to meet her family on the west side of the continent. And we go to meet her aunt, who is an opera singer, a great friend of Dame Nellie Melba, the famous opera singer, and also a, a very gifted clairvoyant, though she doesn't make a fuss about it. And Auntie Dick, as we called her, my mother's aunt, reads the tea leaves in the old-fashioned way. And when she gets to me, she turns white. She turns the cup upside down. She will not talk. She leaves the room, and it's not explained until much later. She saw my death, and she was correct. That winter, the winter of the same year in Tasmania, an island off the south side of Australia, in a bitter winter, I suffered from pneumonia, was taken to hospital, and was pronounced dead. When I came back, the doctors, in surprise and some embarrassment, maybe said, Oh, your boy, he died, and he came back, didn't he? So that's where it begins. And I don't remember much of what happened when I died at age three and came back. I do remember T. It was very hard to operate my body afterwards. I felt like I was in some vehicle I didn't know how to drive. So if I was driving my dad's big old car without being able to reach the pedals with no instructions. So that's where it begins, this experience of being thrown out of your ordinary life, going somewhere else, in this case not remembering much. But six years later, do you want me to go on with this? Yes, absolutely. Six years later, I, you know, I was a pretty sickly kid for these six years, pretty sickly kid for many years of my childhood. I died again. I was rushed to hospital for an emergency appendectomy, this time in Melbourne, and uh, uh, under the surgeon's knives, I found myself floating up under the ceiling of the operating room and, you know, not liking what I'm looking at. It's messy. There's blood. (laughs) People are saying things I don't want to hear, and I don't want to be there. I'm nine years old. I want to, you know, don't want to be in the room with blood and guts and mess, so I leave the room, and I notice my mother grieving in the corridor, and I feel guilty. I'm an only child. I feel bad that she's always worried about me. 
hey, I'm nine years old. I want to do things that regular kids can do, you know, like go to the beach, like go to the theme park down the beach in Melbourne. It's called <laughs> Luna Park. And the gate is a uh-huh. big moon face with a big open mouth. That's how you enter Luna Park, the theme park. So I leave the hospital. I've forgotten I've left my body in the operating room. I'm, you know, fully sentient. I'm operating what seems to be a body. I go through the open mouth of the moon face of Luna Park. I think I'm going to go on the rides and look at the girls in the summer dresses and do normal things that a nine-year-old red-blooded boy would like. But I'm yanked down into a world that is different from our world, maybe a world inside the world. I don't know where it is. And I'm received by beautiful, elegant, pale people who look vaguely human but not altogether like the people up top, and they welcome me as one of their own. And they raise me, and T, I enter a whole life, it seems, amongst this other species, this other race somewhere else. And I grow up to manhood or, or adulthood. I become a father and a grandfather, maybe some kind of shaman in this culture. I lead a very good, long, long life, and then that is done. That body is used up. It's time to go home. I assume home is a place among the stars. But you know what? At that point... I'm yanked back into the body of the nine-year-old kid in the operating room, and I remember. And so this is the birth of my understanding that there are worlds beyond the physical. They're for real. We can go there. Uh, I did this under extreme circumstances, but it's an important thing to know that there are other worlds and we can go there. It wasn't very easy living with this kind of knowledge in a conservative time in Australia in a military family. People were sympathetic. They thought it must be the medication. The doctors would say, oh, it's the medication, isn't it? The kid's hallucinating. And my parents were sympathetic, but they didn't know how to talk about this kind of thing. Very briefly, the first person I knew in my life who would give me a way of understanding this kind of thing was an Aboriginal kid from the indigenous tradition. I wasn't supposed to hang out with Aborigines. Australia was racist in that era, but I did. And he would say to me things like, oh, yeah, we do that. We get sick. We get real sick. We go and live with the spirits. And when we get well, we come back. And sometimes we're the same, and sometimes we're not. So it's out of experiences like this that my lifelong interest in other states of consciousness and other realities has come. And I've known since my boyhood, as I say, There are worlds beyond the physical. We can learn to go there. And I've also learned that dreams and imagination are absolutely critical to everything. Well, what's interesting is that when you were three years old, you you had no recollection of of what happened, but you came back and you knew at three that you couldn't function your body the way that you could prior to. So that's very interesting right there. But then when you were nine, you actually did what we hear typical NDE people do. They float up to the ceiling, they look down, they see the scene, they don't like it, but they don't go as far as you went and go live a life elsewhere, which is fascinating. And to me, that simply confirms or validates that there really is no such thing as time. We, you know, quantum mechanics is now alluding to the fact or even proving, trying to prove that past, future, and parallel lives are existing at the same time. And I buy into that theory. I, I, I do believe too. that that's, I do yeah, too. And I thank you for your true. and thank you for your very perceptive co- comment about the nature of this nine-year-old experience. Because, you know, when Raymond Moody came along, and he's a friend of mine, he gave a wonderful quote for this book and gave us the phrase "near-death experience." I was grateful. I mean, that happened in the 70s. We didn't have that term "near-death experience" when I was a kid. It's a useful term. It mm-hmm. sounds respectable. Lots of people now are coming out from all over and saying, "I've had something like that." And you're quite right. The typical NDE experience is the first part of what I described to you. It's not the experience of living what seems to be a whole life 
somewhere else and coming back and remembering. People do that, but it's a less familiar story. It's a more familiar story, actually, in folklore, folklore mythology and in the tellings of indigenous cultures, which are more familiar with the idea that we might go and live in another world. But to jump forward to your larger proposition just now, yes, the time is now. We are connected, and science tells us this is probably right. We're connected with lives being lived in parallel realities all over the place right now, and our ability to bring that into conscious awareness and play with it, work with it, uh, will it will enlarge our understanding and our gifts in all sorts of ways. You know, it's funny because when I work on people as an energy therapist, and I'm sure you're quite familiar with what that is, I, I work on them, and one of the first things I do when I get into that space, I mean, first of all, they walk into the room, they lay on the table, I put my hands over them, I do not touch people, and the first thing I do is I say, okay, we're going to work on every incarnation of this soul's entity across all time, space, dimension, and reality throughout all history, because I know there's no point in working on just this soul's incarnation here and now. If we're going to raise the vibration, let's raise all of them, because every life interacts with every other life and affects what's going on. You might as well work on them all at the same time. It's, it's not any different. It's not harder. It's not more difficult. It's not taking up any energy. So that's how much I believe that there are other there are lives going on at the same time as the one that I'm living. And I, I would throw out to you that when you went to live this other life, when you, when you did that, when you were nine years old and you came back, you had a full recollection of everything. Like you said, you were a father and all of that. Were there people in that other life that you at that time or since then have met that were also in this life? Uh, I don't know that I can answer that question. I can answer it in, relate, in, in, in relation to other experiences at other points in my life. I don't know that these beings have, have had their counterpart in my physical life since. I'm not sure. I've met people who are kin in the sense that they could belong to a culture like that, could be connected to that. But I cannot say that walking this world... I've met somebody and thought, oh, I knew you in that particular world. That has happened to me in relation to other lives I've encountered lived in something more like human time. For example, in midlife, mm -hmm. in a crisis which absolutely changed my way of doing everything, I found myself connected with a life lived in the 1700s and with the people connected with that life. And at the time that that connection became very strong in my mind and my life, I noticed that around me were all sorts of people who seemed to be counterparts or related to the characters and, uh, and you know, personalities from that time. But I cannot say thinking back on it, that, that these people, these mysterious people, have turned up in my life in ordinary reality. What did happen in midlife was when I went back to my native Australia and went to an exhibition of Aboriginal art, I saw paintings of beings that looked a lot like the people I had encountered. And I learned that Aboriginals call these Mimi spirits, M-I-M-I. -I. Uh, Mimi, not like you know Mimi from Miami, but it's an Aboriginal mm -hmm. term for a certain kind of spirit older than the ancestors commonly recognized very mysterious and very ancient. So I did discover that in the world of the Aboriginal imagination in Australia, there are such beings. But as I say, I don't tend to bump into them in the street on an average day. Right. Now, sometimes when people do past life regressions, like through Dr. Brian Weiss or, or someone of that caliber, they actually, when they're talking about it afterward, will say, well, that probably, it, who do you think it was? Well, in this life, it's my boyfriend, but in that life, he was my husband and, you know, whatever it is that, that's going on. So I didn't know if you had that kind of effect, if that ever hit you, anything like that. But, you know, that's good. At least you know where you, where you stand with that. 
<laughs> hey, look, the geography of non-ordinary reality, you understand, is much vaster than our human geography here. We are not necessarily going to run into everything in one lifespan that we know about in other right. worlds, other universes, other realities. It's not all about who we're going to be married to or divorced from or meet next week or who's in the office. I mean, we are many, and you know this, you spoke about it. We have many connections. Some of them will come into focus in relationships and dramas playing out now, and some maybe are their own stories in another reality which we check in and out of good point right i can understand that that does make a lot of sense i think that the way that you're uh some of the things in your book the way that they're structured there are things that really resonated very very well uh with me when you talked about (laughs) i love this the synchronicity is when the universe gets personal I could. I have never been able to say what synchronicity meant to me until I read that line, and I thought, oh yes, that's exactly what it is. And, the, and synchronicity is when the universe gets personal and thinks it has a sense of humor. <laughs> well, it you does have I mean? a sense of humor. That the that the powers behind the curtains of ordinary understanding, thank goodness, have a better sense of humor than we sometimes manage, and they like to play with us and shock us and tickle us and bring us awake. And, uh, I mean, I live by synchronicity. And uh, as you were saying, it's easier to experience it, to feel it, than to talk about it in some ways. We tend to get tongue-tied and confused when we try to explain this. But we know what's going on when something that is with us as a feeling or a thought or a theme in our lives encounters an event in the world around us that sort of mirrors it back to us or or, or sometimes like a, a funhouse mirror that's sort of dramatizes it and blows it up. I mean, my goodness, there's that. Look, I'm thinking about such and such, and look what's in front of me. We know in that moment that it's personal. We we can't find any causal or causal or rational explanation why what is in our thoughts or our feelings should should be reflected back at us by an event in the world around us. But we know they are connected, and, and we feel sometimes that we're getting a secret wink from the universe, or we're getting a secret handshake, or that something in the universe is pushing us back, or simply mussing our hair and tickling us. But I recommend learning to navigate by synchronicity. It's how I operate 24-7. I believe that because in reading your book, it was very clear. And I thought, I, I try to do stuff like that. I try to operate from a very conscious level and, and see things and say, oh, okay. And, and a lot of times, you get better and better at it so that when things hit you, you say, okay, this is, this is I call it a hit. This is a hit. I need to pay attention to this and move on from there. And it struck me in your book when, you, uh, when your wife came out and told you, uh, what, what about the name Sophie? And that whole sequence... You know, how well, you that, was your dream. That, 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 that was a dream, and it's, it's yeah. so you notice that I spend a certain amount of time with dreams. My wife is five months pregnant. She comes into the space I'm in at 3 o'clock in the morning. I keep strange hours, and she says, if it's a girl, shall we call her Sophie? And I turn, and I say, tell me. And she describes her dream of a golden child who looks about two years old, who says to her in the dream, my name is Sophie, get it right. This is the dream. So we knew at that moment, without any tests, that we were having a girl. Oh, yeah. And we knew her name. It's Sophie, not Sophia. Get it right. So that's an example. Yeah, you get of, it right. Yeah. <laughs> it, there's so many levels to this, and it's very relevant to anybody who has any connection with pregnancy or childbirth or bringing souls through. I mean, one of the things we need to wake up to is that when uh, a new spirit is coming into the world, into the body, we want people who are awakened and are able to receive and encourage that spirit to come through and to hear it. In my native Australia, the Aborigines say that every child deserves a 
spiritual godparent who is not necessarily one of the biological godparents whose role is to speak to the incoming spirit and encourage it to come through. So that's an example from a modern life of a very ancient wisdom about how we get ready to welcome those who are coming through into incarnation this time. That was fascinating because I thought, oh, this little girl knows what she wants. You better get it right. It's my name. This is it. You better get it and right. She got, I just she got exactly what that. she asked for. She got exactly what she asked for. <laughs> and that, that's fascinating because I really think that synchronicity, a lot of people think synchronicity is what happens during the day. But there are so many things. The dream state, to me, it allows us to travel to anywhere, past, present, future, to create, to learn, to grow, to analyze, to figure things out, to solve problems. You know, you state that it can be a conscious practice, and I believe we can set ourselves up for what we would like to know or solve or even travel to other places when we're getting ready to retire at night. Is that what you mean by a conscious practice, or do you mean the more awake conscious practice? Well, I mean I mean everything you just said and, and, and more than that. I mean, certainly we can set ourselves up to be conscious or lucid dreamers during the night. The one easy way to do, do that is to set up an intention for dreaming. Part of it is learning to maintain consciousness in the in-between state. You're not quite awake. You're not quite asleep. You're somewhere in between images rise and fall. You notice you have heightened psychic abilities in this state. You can sometimes find yourself communicating with really interesting inner or transpersonal guides. So that's part of it. But part of it also is learning to embark on conscious or lucid dream adventures any time you like. This is the real definition of a shaman. A real shaman, whatever the new age might think, is somebody who's able to travel in dreaming at will any time. I would recommend without hallucinogenics or drugs. We use drumming in my oh. workshops. And one of the ways to learn to travel like a shamanic dreamer is you've had a dream at some point or a dream has had you. You have a recollection of that that dream. It has some energy or juice for you, some mystery, some terror, some drama, some pleasure, some excitement. You can learn to travel back through the doorway of the dream you remember quite consciously, travel inside it, gather more of the full experience of the dream and travel beyond what you remembered into other spaces. So I teach people to do things like that. But beyond that, to come back to your synchronicity point, being a conscious dreamer, being an, an active dreamer, is also about looking at the world around you as a forest of living symbols. I'm borrowing from a French poet, Baudelaire. The world is a forest of living symbols that are looking at you. Look at the world around you as a set of symbols speaking to you, like dream symbols if you pay attention. Notice how messages and signs are coming to you from the world around you in the vanity plate on that car in front of you, in that snatch of conversation on the street, in that logo on the truck, on the behavior of the black dog at that corner. Uh, the world is speaking to you in a manner of dream, in the manner of dreams if you'll pay attention. So conscious or active dreaming is about playing with all of this. And you know what? The more you play with this, the better you get at it. Dreaming is a discipline. It's fun, but it's a discipline like particle physics or archaeology or yoga or Olympic skiing. Practice, practice, practice makes you better. But the great thing to know is it's your birthright. Everybody has access to this. It's not just for a few people who've done some particular training or esoteric stuff. Not at all. Everybody dreams in the night, whether or not they accept that, whether or not they've awakened to it. And everybody can play with synchronicity by day if they're willing. You know, I'm so glad you said all that because I see 
synchronistic things in so many things. When you said license plates, I thought I see license plates all the time that that give. They may add up to a specific number, and I deal a lot in numerology. So if the number comes up to somebody who I know is their life path, I will start to think about that person. I'll go, okay, there's you know so and so, and or I'll, something will just hit me in a license plate. That happens a lot. A lot of things come to me around water. Water seems to be really big in in my life as far as synchronicities and getting messages or whatever. And I do take them all as signs from the universe, as signs from, you know, wherever. And the lucid dreaming, and that's kind of what I call when I wake up in the morning, but I'm going back to sleep. And I, there's a lot that happens then. You can get so many. It can really set up your day. You know, you know what's going to happen, and you can get information that you can utilize and come up with really great ideas and kind of almost premonitions, if you will. That, that's how I kind of work with that. So I, I think when it happens as frequently as it does, it's because you start to notice it, and then it becomes almost game-like where what else can I notice? What else can I notice? And, and you start seeing things. And I've had people say, you know, that really can't be the way it is. And it's like, yeah, really, I'm trying to live my life this way because it's working for me and I like it. <laughs> and I think that's, that's pretty much what you're saying, isn't it? No, I, no, I love you bringing in the, the spirit of play. It's absolutely essential. When you're talking about this state of... I think what you were just mentioning now is the state of uh, coming out of sleep dreams and drifting and having some time before you get up and go out into the world. The $5 word for that is hypnopompic state. It's an ugly word. We don't need to use it. But that early morning state, your body is sufficiently rested. You don't have to rush out of the world right away. Hopefully, you're drifty. That's a very propitious, a very auspicious, a very good state in which to entertain uh, glimpses of the future, psychic impressions, etc. Mm -hmm. Many cultures have known what they're doing with dreaming, have valued that state highly. There's a special word for it in the Hawaiian language. There's a special valuation of it in Greco-Roman texts. This state, when your body is rested, you've come through much of the night, but you're still connected to the dream space. You're not fully back in the narrow physical focus. That is a time to entertain conversation with intelligences beyond your ordinary range, maybe with the spiritual guide of your life or one of your spiritual guides. The time to check out the future, scout around, see what lies ahead of you. You talk about premonition. It can be more than premonition. It can be, it can be fairly exact foreknowledge of what is going to happen. When we come to that theme of premonition or precognition, T, I must say this to you. I take the conservative mainstream view that we do nothing in waking life until it is dreamed. I mean by that, that I think we travel ahead of ourselves, whether we're remotely aware of this or not. I think part of soul, part of consciousness, part of spirit is forever scouting ahead of us on the roads of the possible future, checking what those ways look like, checking for challenges and opportunities that lie ahead. And one of the reasons that most human societies until recently have valued dreams and dreamers highly is that they have understood that we see the future, we see things that will happen, we see things that may or may not happen, depending on whether we read the messages correctly and take appropriate action. And they have understood that our survival, our well-being, our prosperity, our happiness may depend on using that kind of information to do better. This is an area I've worked with hugely 
and I must add that in that in true shamanic traditions, where where the shaman dreamer is responsible for the well-being of his or her person, uh, his or her people, their ability to do this kind of thing to scout out the future, not only for yourself but for other people, who've been absolutely at the centre of the practice and even at the centre of the survival of whole communities. We've lost that at our at our peril because we may have the NSA. God has help us. We may have this or that, but if we've lost if we've lost our ability to use this God has given dream radar to see the future for ourselves and others, we've lost a great deal. I think people are trying to get back to that. I think there's a there's a huge awakening right now of people wanting to live more from they're calling it from their gut or to live more in presence consciousness, being aware in the present moment. And to me, being in the present moment is is not just being here, but yes, you have to almost scout out. And that's kind of what happens during that time in the morning is I know that, okay, I guess this is what's going to happen today. This is cool. You know, whatever it is, I'll, I'll know. I actually get a lot of information, as you said, and it's almost giving me the answer if I choose to read it properly. Now, you did state in your book, treasures await us in the place between sleep and awake. Is that... That's this, correct? Well, yes, this is one example of it, this morning state. But, you know, we have different sleep patterns, and we and our bodies have different requirements. I wouldn't recommend that anybody else should try and follow my sleep pattern. I, I don't sleep for long periods of time. Typically, I'm awake many times in the few hours I spend in bed at night, and then I'll have a nap later in the day if I can, so that I might have many periods of that in-between state. Let me explain where the phrase comes from. I borrowed this from Disney. Sometimes Hollywood does some good stuff. In the movie of Peter Pan, the Hollywood scriptwriters gave Tinkerbell the following line. Peter Pan is sad because Tink, his fairy friend, is leaving. And Tinkerbell says to him, look for me in the place between sleep and awake. There you will always find me. It's such a great statement. It's not in the original novel, J.M. Barry's original novel. You know, I'm, a, I'm also a former professor, so I check these things. It's just in the Hollywood script, but it's a great <laughs> script. I love that phrase. It's a more interesting phrase than hypnagogia, which is the $10 word for this in-between state. I used to call it the <laughs> Twilight Zone, but with the success of the Twilight <laughs> movies and novels, that gets a bit confusing, doesn't it? You know, with the vampires <laughs> out and prowling. Got to watch yourself there. So I like I to like call it, it the, Yeah, well, I, I, I call it the Twilight Twilight, the twilight zone, twilight area. I still have an affection for that. Anyway, it's that in-between state. It's the borderland. You're drifty. You're not asleep. You're not awake. You're somewhere in between. You may just be sort of cuffing yourself because you're not asleep and you feel you're missing your Z's. But if you can avoid that syndrome, you might notice that images are arising. And it is precisely in that in-between state that, you know, we make creative connections that the ordinary brain can't handle. In one of my books, The Secret History of Dreaming, I looked at the true history of scientific discovery and innovation. And I found that a lot of huge scientific breakthroughs in history, in the record, in the documents, came in that in-between state. Sometimes they've been attributed to dreams, but that is not necessarily the case. A lot of these breakthroughs came in this in-between place between sleep and awake. So I sometimes think of it also as the solution state. I know it's a creative place. It's a way of creating think, creative thinking beyond the ordinary. It's also a, an easy launch pad for lucid dreaming. Hey, you want to be a lucid dreamer? Hey, you want to navigate the dream space and make choices and choose whether you're going to go to Tahiti or Atlantis or somewhere else tonight? Well, 
The easiest way to become that kind of lucid, lucid dream traveler is frankly to start out lucid or conscious and stay that way. And how would you do that? Well, in an ordinary night, if you're not too tired, if you can stay drifty but conscious, in a state of relaxed awareness in that in-between state, you might just be able to have some great adventures. Of course, your imagination will become important because if you can't think of anything you want to do in that state, you might have a boring time. I remember a friend many years ago who found herself precisely in that state of, of absolutely wide awake, lucid dream. You think it's four o'clock in the morning. You think, what shall I do? Oh, I'll go, for, go go to the mall. She says to herself. So she goes to the <laughs> biggest mall in the area. It's four o'clock in the morning. Everything's closed. There's just a few dozy security guards. She's wandering around, looking in the windows forlornly. A window shop with nothing open. When she called me in the morning, I hooted with laughter. I said, "Hey, you're out of your body. You lose the dream. All you can think to do is go to the mall at four o'clock in the morning." Think about this a little bit more creative imagination next time, please. <laughs> and at least if you're going to go to a mall, go to a mall in a time zone where they're open. That's <laughs> there a are good malls point. everywhere. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, you know, you learn as you go through these processes, I'm sure. <laughs> now, there's, uh, you died a third time. I did. Well, I, 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 yeah. I, 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 this time I didn't lose vital signs in hospital. The, the third boyhood experience, I'm 11 years old. I have a fantastic vision in a stormy sky. I see filling half the sky something like a serpent, a snake of blazing bronze or gold wrapped around a stick or a staff filling half the sky. And I described it to my parents. They made me draw it. And I drew it, drew it, and they were interested. But it's funny how people sometimes take more seriously what you say you saw with your eyes open than what you say you saw with your eyes closed. Then I got pneumonia for the last time. I was taken to hospital. As far as I remember, I was not pronounced dead this time. And after that, after that last crisis, it was a life-threatening illness. So this is my 12th encounter with pneumonia in both lungs in eight years. I mean, I was incredibly, mm. incredibly threatened child. After that, I stopped getting ill. So there's a connection which I try to explain in my book, but is still partly mysterious to me, between the vision which I came to understand has a great mythic connection. I'll come back to that in just a second. And the final crisis of illness in childhood from which I came back different. I now no longer got sick in big ways. I had minor problems, had the skin problems of an adolescent, etc. I'd get colds, but I didn't get any of the huge things that had afflicted me, the allergies that had also bound me down, disappeared. So this time it was a healing experience. Later on, I learned, I guess I could have figured this out by just looking at what's on the side of an ambulance or on the door of a hospital, I figured out that the snake wrapped around the staff in the sky is the symbol of Asclepius, the Greek god of dream healing, whose symbol is used in our medical profession, our hospitals, insurance companies all over the place. So this is an experience of a vision followed by a last crisis of illness, followed by a reprieve, a release from what had been holding me back. Uh, in a sense, I had a fourth uh, experience of dying and coming back, which is at least as profound as any of the others in midlife. It was not this time a crisis lived out in hospital with me being pronounced dead. It was a crisis of a kind of shamanic initiation of, of learning to deal with people and intelligences from other times and dimensions and having to struggle to get it all together. And finally, out of that maelstrom, of psychic uh, activity, finally deciding that I must find the courage to follow a way for which there's no career track in our culture, the way of a, a dream teacher. You know, so you've had these four 
experiences where two of them are bona fide, you died, and the other two are close enough and we can call it that. So it, it seems to me that you probably are not afraid to die, but then again, there's no guarantee that you're going to come back. So is it scary? I mean, is it all too familiar, like, oh, here we go again? Uh, well, no, I'm not. I'm not afraid of death. I mean, death is. I, I used to be really almost in love with death. I mean, death is my ally. My favorite workshop is called "Making Death Your Ally," and I actually introduce people to their personal death in a quite scary way, and I have them face an interrogation by death about what they have done in their lives and not done, and what they regret. My my fear, my concern, uh, as that of most conscious humans, is uh, maybe uh, is of dying without having done all the things I'm supposed to do in this life experience, without having made right the things I need to make right, with having dealt with all the issues that might have come up, with having without having fulfilled my life contract as I understand it. Although I think I've made some progress with that, I think that for the last twenty plus years of following the path I've been on since that midlife crisis in on the edge of Mohawk Indian country, I think I've been doing the essential things that my larger self wants me to do in this world. Uh, death for me is an ally, not an enemy. I like to do this tea, and I recommend to other people that they should try to find the courage to do it. I like to look at any issue that comes up in life with the idea that death is standing there at your left shoulder, can take you any time. So what are you going to do? I mean, why not take the risk, maybe? Why not take the creative risk? Why not do that thing that you will regret not having done if death takes you now? Why not put right what you can put right today? Why not extend forgiveness and blessing, if you can, to someone who hurt you or someone you hurt? Why not do it now? So my attitude in life is to practice death in that very, very exact sense of looking at issues in life, looking at choices you make with the idea that death can take you any time. So whatever choice you're going to make, do it with that knowledge and that understanding so that when you get to the other side, you won't have to spend excessive time regretting what you did or did not do before you went. I know there's life beyond death. I've been there. It's not a matter of faith. It's not a matter of belief. Not only have I been there through these personal crises, but hey, I get around. I travel, and I travel on the behalf of other people, and I lead people in group journeys in my workshops to locations on the other side of death. I can tell you there's a tremendous and vast geography in the afterlife. I'm sympathetic to the view of a people of the South Pacific who say there are as many afterlife situations as there are human imaginations. In a sense, you can design your own afterlife, have a lot to do with your interests, your desires, and your imagination. But of course, because a lot of us don't have all that much imagination, we may end up in the sort of group tour situation, you know, like a bunch of tourists following some little flag going from point A to point mm-hmm. B to point C, looking at what they're told to look at. But, you know, there is a great difference. As I get older, T, let me say this. I divide the world into people who know through some kind of first-hand experience there is life beyond death and those who do not. It's almost as important a distinction as that between people who have a sense of humor and those who do not. I, I, understand, I believe there's life after death. I mean, too many times there have been people who have come through from the other side that you can literally have a conversation with, and either by way of a, a medium or sometimes even just in an energy therapy session. I know when there are people there. So that's not – I just thought, you know, when you're going through it physically yourself, it, would it be scary like that? Because you couldn't come back, and, you know, you never know which one's – going to take you and you're right i think a lot of the things that you said are easier to do than 
for me anyway, than something, a physical challenge, a scary physical challenge, like I wouldn't want to jump out of a plane, and I really don't think I would regret if I never did that. (laughs) You know, um, the other things, the forgiveness factor and everything, I mean, I try to rectify things immediately because you just don't know. And I don't even do that really for me if I dropped dead tomorrow. I do it because if the other person's gone, I can't. And so, therefore, you have to, you know, make peace with the other people. If the other person is gone, you cannot. Well, let me just jump in and say one of the things we want to learn is that healing and forgiveness and closure are always available even beyond the apparent barrier of death. That's one of the reasons why so many people on the other side of death are trying to contact the living. And that's why there will always be a use for authentic mediums and psychics because not enough people on this side are receptive or able or willing to Mm -hmm. receive the messages and entertain the communications that are coming through. However, what I teach and recommend is first-hand contact. If there's someone you have known who you wish to reach, who is trying to reach you, I I teach very simple ways of establishing direct communication. And of course, it is through direct communication with the deceased that we gain one of the most important forms of first-hand knowledge of life beyond death. And in these matters, T, it's essential to have first-hand knowledge. They're far too important to take it on trust from someone else. I remember I had a fireman who came to one of my early workshops, Soul of the Earth, Irish-American fireman. He'd spent three years looking for his wife. He was a one-woman guy. He'd been married to her for 40-plus years. He was devastated. She died before him. He had no dreams. He had no direct contact. He'd been to psychics. He'd been to mediums. He'd been to shamans, but no direct contact. And Tom wanted the real deal. He wanted to speak to her. I said, Tom, okay, I'm going to pick up this piece of G-Wiz high technology, a drum, a simple frame drum, a shaman's drum in the midst of my workshop, and I'm going to suggest a way you can look for her and meet her on her own ground and learn, not only have contact with her, but learn about her life condition. So I'm drumming, the group is journeying with the drum, and the joint theme is we're going to establish timely and helpful communication with our deceased, the ones we choose to contact, and we're going to learn something about their conditions. Tom makes the journey. I'm with him. I see it. I feel it. There's love abounding. Here's his wife. She's busy. She's at a desk in a pleasant landscape. He has a little bit of time required to get her full attention. He says, don't you still love me? He says, yes, Tom, but you have a lot more time in this world. And I'm busy up here. I've got things to do. Please, please, please go and enjoy the time on this in, in your world that you have. And he comes back with tears streaming down his cheeks. There's closure. There's happiness. And six months later, to round out the story, I run into him in the produce uh, section of a, of a supermarket. He lived in the same area at the time. He looks good. He's lost 40 pounds. He's got a tan. Tom, what happened to you? He says, oh, after my wife gave me permission, I started dating that girl I knew in church. The girl was 63 years old, and he's just come back from his honeymoon in Jamaica. So, you know, it's amazing what can come out of this. You want to be psychological? You say, well, that's psychological, wishful thinking. Uh, Fine, that would be great, but it's also transpersonal. It's a direct encounter. In these matters, we need first-hand information. Hand-me-down information, uh, regression, hypnosis, mediums, all right, fine, they all have their role, but people want direct information. That's one of the things that I lead them to understand and to do. 
Well, I think and that's what's important is because the reason why people go to the other sources is because they don't feel that they have the ability to do that. We all have the ability to do this. It's just a yes. matter of how much you flex that muscle and, and yes. you know, like going to the gym. You want a toned body, go to the gym. You want to flex the muscle of being able to connect with others on the other side. You have to work on that and, and do it. And yeah. start, with your, start with your dreams. Start by making your intention to remember your dreams. I mean, so many people in this culture are suffering from a prolonged dream drought. I also teach people very simply how to break that drought. But it can start tonight for anybody suffering a dream drought. Just make it your intention to remember something from the night and write it down. And whenever you wake up, to write something down. You don't have a dream. Write down the first thought, feeling, soundtrack in your mind. That way you're putting out a welcome mat and saying, I'm here, I'm willing to listen. It is through dreams that the deceased, the departed, find it most easy to have authentic, direct, and coherent conversation with us. When they can't do it through dreams, they'll do it in other ways. But I do think that dreams are the common portal for this kind of communication, open to anybody who's willing to let that door be open. Yeah, I think that's true because at that point you're, there's less resistance when you're sleeping to anything. You know, and so things are easy, more easily come through. And you are, well, the subtitle of your book is Adventures of a Dream Archaeologist in the Multiverse, and you are a dream archaeologist, which is really not a familiar term. <laughs> it, it, you know, what is a dream archaeologist? Are there many of you on the planet? <laughs> I like inventing phrases, too. You may have noticed that. By the way, my, my, <laughs> yes. my general name for my whole approach is active dreaming, which is also a new coinage. I, I coined it as a provocation to get people beyond the idea that dreaming is just a passive activity. You have a dream, or a dream has you. But dream archaeologists, what is that? Well, an we know something about what archaeologists do. They try and dig up interesting stuff, which shows us what real history is like, how our ancestors lived, what life was like, what spirit was like, what culture was like in different places and times. This is about using the techniques of active dreaming or shamanic dreaming that I teach and practice to learn interesting things about our ancestors, our world, the history we need to know about, uh, about how to bring back authentic ritual and traditions from different places. In the last part of this new book, The Boy Who Died and Came Back, I, give, I write some adventures from my trail as a dream archaeologist. I write, for example, about traveling to the Baltic. I write about my first trip to Lithuania 10 years ago. I've been six times since to this little country in the Baltic. And I write about how mm -hmm. in my very first adventure in Lithuania, I'm leading a group to make contact with the ancestors. We've got 45 Lithuanians on a spit of land in the Baltic Sea, and I'm drumming and we're opening a door in a tree, ga tree gate to meet the ancestors. I am suddenly bang while drumming for the group in direct contact with the Gine, a priestess of the ancient earth goddess, Jemina of Lithuania, and she teaches me things. She gives me words, she gives me symbols, she gives me rituals from the old way, the old female way, the goddess line of the Baltic. And when I come back, having drummed for the group, I start discussing what I found with Lithuanians in the group, and they're helping me to translate these words of old Lithuanian, and a white witch, a good, wise woman from the woods, invites me to her house, her cottage in the woods, and teaches me the first man ever to be taught such things the first non-Lithuanian teaches me the, the charms, the invocations, the ways of using amber, 
handed down from grandmother to granddaughter for 17 generations of her family. So that's an example of what dream archaeology is. It's a way of combining uh, possible skills, the skills we can develop as dreamers, and particularly as shamanic dreamers, combining it with scholarship and research to bring back authentic knowledge from the ancestors in ways that are really interesting. That was about unfolding the oldest known goddess tradition in the ancient world that is surviving today. That's big stuff. It's big stuff in the psyche, the collective spirit of humanity. It's relevant in that country for the cultural soul recovery of a people who've been through a nightmare history. And anyway, if you want to see how it, what it is in practice, read those last chapters in part five of The Boy Who Died and Came Back. You'll find many adventure stories are there. Yes, and that was the one where you met a Merlin of the Baltic, right? That was just... Yes, yes, just yes. Was not, great, not, not good, not bad, just was. Yeah, well, I don't, I don't think that the real Merlin is good or bad. He just is, and it's that's that's yeah, yes, yeah. that's a ch- that's a chapter in that part. That's my most recent visit to Lithuania, the spring of last year, when we're up on a conical hill, looks like a pyramid, but it's completely natural. Uh, Kanavia, which was a medieval capital of Lithuania, and the hill is attributed to Lizdeka. Who's Lizdeka? Well, he's the shaman from the eagle's nest, according to legend. He was discovered as a baby in the nest of an eagle on top of this. Street. Hill. He rose to become a very important figure in the pagan culture of the time. He was advisor to the Grand Duke, who, who told the Grand Duke what his dream of an iron wolf met and persuaded the Grand Duke to build what is now the city of Vilnius based on the dream. Interesting character. We decided we would go there and we would see whether we could open a portal between the worlds and have contact with him. I truly believe that we did, and I describe what happened. It was like as if, as if the world in front, you, in front of you has a sort of Velcro, you know, theme, and you're sort of parting the Velcro and through the Velcro with the drumming in the Lithuanian rain. The name of the country means rain country. Uh, there's contact with people and beings from another time behind the veil of ordinary reality. So we were all, you know, this whole group of 40 Lithuanians and I were, and some others, people from other countries, were immediately in a an interdimensional portal. Um, it might sound crazy. There's a you had to have been there. Uh, element to these things, but if you read the story, you can form your own conclusions. And since we have the director of the Archaeological Museum with us, ready to check and verify details, we're able to bring in instant research and scholarship to ground this stuff. So it's not New Age soap bubbles. It's an investigation and a shamanic investigation of what has gone on in the world of magic and mythology and living myth in a certain territory, uh, and then checking it out and verifying it, which is something I always love to do. You know, yes, your book is, is truly fascinating, and the stories are, it, it's hard to keep some of them for me, because I read a book a week for the show, so it was hard for me to keep some of them straight, that's why I asked, was this the one where the Merlin was from the Baltic? I, it's, you know, sometimes it's, it, it can be a little confusing, but it's because I read it so quickly just to be able to talk about it on the show, rather than actually enjoying it in the way that one would when they go out and buy the book, because there's so much in it that you can learn from, and you'll be able to do things on your own just by following what you have done, to know that, okay, you can get yourself into this dream state, and you can you know, live like this and actually use the guides that are there for you. It's something that I think everybody probably you know, should become more adept at. And I really think there's a hunger and a thirst out there for people to do just that. I'm seeing it more and more that people want to be able to have more guidance 
from their own self and get away from all the technology and everything that's pulling them down and causing stress. And that's why they're not dreaming because they can't even sleep. They're just, you know, they're just so tired and, and they're doing so much. They're stressed out. And this, when you read the book, it brings you to a place where you'll be able to fall asleep and you'll be able to have dreams and maybe your life will get a whole lot better because of it. Is there anything that you feel in all of your you know, dying and coming back and all the dream work that you have done that you have learned that is probably the most profound thing that you can share with the world at large? Well, probably the most important thing is something you said early in the show. The only time is now. And from this point of now, if we're aware of it, we can access any other time, past, future, parallel time. And we may be able to change things for the better in the future, in the possible future, maybe in the past. I mean, I don't believe I could be talking to you on this phone, frankly, if I had not learnt, for example, to go back to my younger self, that sick, lonely boy in Australia, in his own time and give him the encouragement and the support and the cheerleading that he needed. There's a chapter about that in the book. I write about how when I was a young boy, I was sick in, in, in solitary sick rooms. I'd see this large man with white hair and a big pink face who'd come and sit down beside me and say, look here, kid, you're going to make it through. I promise you're going to survive. You're lonely, but one day you'll know the love of women and they'll love you. You can't talk about dreams and visions, but one day the world will be eager to hear. I practiced consciously, you know, 20 years ago, the art of going back to my younger self and talking to him his own time and encourage him, encouraging him and bringing him along. It's one of the things I train people to do. It may sound extraordinary, but hey, why not give it a shot? Just imagine. Suppose that you remember a time when you were lonely, sick, or vulnerable. Suppose you could establish mental communication with yourself in that time, retaining the confidence and knowledge that you're going to make it through, staying grown up about this, and be the counselor, be the mentor, be the friend, be the big sister, big brother that younger self needs, or go to that confused and reckless younger self and try and warn him, warn him or her off from making the worst mistakes. Wouldn't that be worth trying? Well, it's one of the things that you can do consciously when you wake up to the fact that the time is now. And how about all those parallel cells? How about the T who's over there doing something completely other than what she's doing right now? But you know what? May have gifts and blessings and lessons for the T who's on the line with me right now. And how about the, the Robert who's swimming in the South Pacific instead of talking on a phone right now and looks really good and is out there swimming with the, the scuba diving with the, with the manta rays, which he would love to do. Maybe I can bring some strength <laughs> and energy from him into my present body, which loves the water but isn't in it nearly often enough. So these are some of the things you can begin to do when you just open yourself to the idea, hey, the time is now. Let's use the best of our imagination, the best of our goodwill, to reshape, revision our past, our future, and our possible selves from this moment of now. Oh, and that is a great way to end this show. We are almost out of town, time, Robert, but yeah, this has been such a fascinating discussion, and I thank you so much for sharing all of your time with us. It's really been a pleasure. Before we go, though, would you please tell our listeners how they can learn more about you and where they can purchase your book? Well, you should be able to get my books in your friendly local bookstore. If they don't have it, to gently make a fuss and make sure they order it in. You can get get my books mm -hmm. from the usual suspects online. There are actually 10 of them now on Dreaming and Imagination, starting with Conscious Dreaming and extending to The Boy Who Died and Came Back. My website is Moss Dreams, M-O-S-S, Dreams, plural, MossDreams.com. I'm all over Facebook. If you're on Facebook, go to my author page, Robert Moss Dreams, for a start, and go on from there. Mm -hmm. I have a very active Facebook presence. I'm 
about to do a tele a teleseminar for the Shift Network, so you might want to find out about that too. That would be a way of interacting with me. And you can also find your way to my live workshops. I mean, you might be astonished, pleasantly astonished, by what becomes possible working and playing with these techniques in a circle of active dreamers. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. You know, listeners, we need you to spread the word. We know you enjoy what you hear on Energy Awareness Radio, so please share it with your friends. We live in a very challenging and constantly changing world, and that's why I have the guests that I do, to keep you apprised so you won't get lost in the dross of life. We need to stay aware so we can navigate easily and live the life we are meant to live productively, healthfully, and purposefully. And this is where you find the tools to do just that. So send the link for this show that you just listened to to everyone you know and let them have the same opportunity that you just had so they may learn and grow and make the world a better place for all. Thank you so much again, Robert. I appreciate so much your sharing time with us tonight. This was really fascinating. It was terrific. Thank you very, very much. Well, you're a wonderfully energetic host. Thank you so much. Oh, you're quite welcome. On behalf of everyone here at Energy Awareness Radio, I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in this evening. My name is T. Love, and I hope you'll be back next Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for another great show here at Energy Awareness Radio. For more information about me, please visit my website, quantumwellness.org. You'll find an archived list of past shows, the lineup for upcoming shows, as well as information about other upcoming events I'll be hosting throughout the year, including upcoming Crystal Singing Bowl concerts. And if you're not in the area or you cannot make a concert, you may order my CD imagine from my website as well don't forget to follow me on twitter at nrg aware radio that's at nrg aware radio i am your host here at energy awareness radio t love intending you and yours a most wonderful week remember living from your heart is quite easy you need only give thanks to do so take care and stay well
It's not a hand. 